Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 25th, 2023, and my guest is watchmaker and author Rebecca Struthers. She is the author of Hands of Time, A Watchmaker's History, and that is our subject for today. Rebecca, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful book. It's a history of timekeeping, time, Rebecca Struthers. Uh, it's got a lot of... Uh, Fascinating observations about all of the above. Uh, I'm going to start with your day, if you have one. It's somewhat typical. Uh, you make your own watches with your husband. Um, you repair watches. You restore watches. What proportion of the time divides between those tasks? And uh, what is there a typical day? Yeah, so um, ideally, um, my typical day would start at sort of eight, half eight o'clock in the morning, um, getting to work, try not to be distracted by emails and tuck straight into a job. And uh, I tend to separate whether I'm doing restoration or making uh, for that day. I also try um, and separate whether or not I'm doing clean or dirty work. So clean work would be things like the servicing and restoration or a, a building a watch if there's a watch that I've made. And dirty work would be things like case making that involves a lot of uh, dirt and polishing compounds or making parts. So anything that's on the lathe and there's a lot of oil and swarf bits of metal around. Obviously, you don't want any of that going in a lovely clean watch that you've just restored. So it's good to keep those sort of jobs separate. And you started as a, in the jewelry business or jewelry maker. And... Um, you just decided to get smaller, I guess. T tell us about that decision, how that came about. Yeah, well, I ended up in jewellery by accident in itself. So um, I went to a very academic school. Um, we were very much about pursuing careers in serious subjects like science and mathematics, you know, ones that you need for a good job, um, which I did to a point. Um, but I'm also very creative and I really struggled not having a creative side to what I do. Um, certainly the way we're taught um, in the UK is that art and science are very separate subjects and the two don't really overlap, which, of course, in the real world is not the case at all. Um, so I, um, yeah, I struggled and I dropped out halfway through my um, higher degrees, my A-levels, um, and left to go to art school and study jewellery and silversmithing, which, yeah, just happened to be down the road. There was a college that taught it and um, I was an air cadet and my cadet leader recommended it because he was a jeweller. So really roundabout um, coincidence. Um, yeah, I started studying jewellery and silversmithing for a couple of years which was a great way into the trade because it was very hands-on. Um, it was a BTEC national diploma at the time and um, a lot of basic hand skills, so learning how to file, learning how to use a saw, learning how to use a drill, um, really, really kind of entry-level stuff, but fantastic foundation. There's a lot of points in your book where you're talking about, you talk about yourself or, an, or a, a famous watchmaker 
uh, using a drill. Mm. Um, I think of a drill as sort of the opposite of what I'd be wanting to use around a watch. To me, when you take a drill, you, you know, there's a lot of and then there's little pieces flying around. And uh, is what's it like to drill at a watch? And how, what's like the the, the whole small not be very big. <laughs> yeah, so I actually have a tattoo of a bow drill um, on my forearm. Uh, we use a lot of drills. So in watchmaking, all of the um, arbors that rotate, so all the wheels that are turning within a watch, need to be in a pivoted hole, which is something we drill into the plates. So we use drills quite a lot. Um, we also use them in making cases. So anything where a screw goes into, we need to drill and tap the hole first. Um, obviously, it's quite controlled. It's not like your home DIY drill into the wall kind of drills. We have their pillar drills, which are high precision. Um, yeah, so they're like miniature versions of what you see in the larger engineering laboratories. If I were uh, in London uh, and my watch was broken or I'd inherited a watch as, as a Londoner uh, from my great-grandparents, say, and I, it didn't work, and I wanted to see if it was possible to fix it, and how much it might cost. Uh, you're in Birmingham, right? Um, we or, we were in Birmingham. We're now in Leek in Staffordshire, which is a bit further north. Okay. So starting in London, and then we'll expand out into, say, the entire United Kingdom. How many people do, would you guess, or maybe you actually know, do what you do? Um, doing the, what we do the way we do it is a really rare skill and um, there aren't many restorers left um, able to work on particularly very high-end stuff and the very early stuff so how easy it is to get your watch fixed completely depends on what sort of watch it is if it's quite modern um, you get kind of accredited service centers and there's plenty of those so you're generally okay um, not always a, a cheap thing to have done but you've got people who'll be able to help you the restoration on the other hand so if you've got something that's older than 60, 70, 80 years old, um, particularly if it's over 100 or so years old, uh, if it's very complicated. Um, complications in horology are anything that goes beyond telling the time. So they can be something like a chronograph, which is like a stopwatch, but you can get uh, perpetual calendars that can keep the correct um, date of the year for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can get repeaters that chime out the time on uh, tuned gongs, all sorts of things. All of those add to the level of complication and there are few and fewer watchmakers who can do them. Um, it's a real, we have a bit of a skill shortage at the moment. It's not just in the UK as well. It's uh, a global issue. But do you think, is it 10 people or a thousand or 50? Um, top level restorers, I'd say less than 50. Um, and yeah, I mean, pocket watch restorers, uh, which is another kind of almost an art within the art. Um, I could probably count on one hand really top end pocket watch restorers in the UK. Yeah. Do you know them all? Um, most of them. Yeah, we do know each other. We kind of have a circle that we send work between because we're all so busy. And um, there are not enough restorers, good high end restorers in the UK to meet the demand. Um, so we have a tendency of recommending work on to each other and yeah, there's always the fear that people will go around in a circle until you recommend it back to the person you started with because no, none of us have time. Um, the irony of, of horology is there is so little time <laughs> to do what we do. <laughs> and that word is horology, H-O-R-O-L-O-G-Y, a word that you don't encounter much but is in your book. Um, I assume you also consult those other competitors, but 
also kind of cooperators for ideas when you have things that seem difficult to solve, problems are difficult to solve, or uh, tools that you need that you can't find? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there are so few of us, we're not really competitors in a way. We we need each other because, you know, I hate saying no to someone if we don't have the time to restore something and just sending them off into the ether. I always like to have someone I can pass them on to if I can. Um, so they're useful people to have around. And some of them we work with actively. Um, so case making, for example, um, watch case making traditionally using bits of bar and sheet metal where you turn it up in a lathe and form it. Um, there's well, the last um, specialist watch case maker passed away a couple of years ago. And the only case makers I now know in the UK are watchmakers who do that as part of their job. Um, I only know one case maker who will make watch cases for existing movements. So if you had a really beautiful pocket watch movement, that's its case had been scrapped at some point in its history for the gold or, or silver. Um, yeah, there's a, there's only one that I know of that would help you with that. And um, he does engine turning as well. It's a chap called Seth Kennedy. Um, and we work with him on making dials now for our new watches that we make. So we actually kind of, yeah, we're a good little network and we all kind of get on and support each other when we can. Um, I credit a lot of them at the end of my book as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the oldest watch you've ever um, worked on? So generally speaking, Roughly. Okay. Um, generally for the watches that I work on in my workshop, about 1700 is as early as I go. Um, in terms of handled and taken apart, about fifteen thirty is the oldest one I've taken apart. Yeah. How many eighteenth-century watches do you see a year? Um, uh, uh, honestly, quite a lot, but that's uh, several of them are mine. Um, <laughs> that's kind of that's my uh, era of interest in history. So I, I really love the eighteenth-century watchmaking. Um, and I have, I mean, I have more movements than complete watches. Um, sadly, a lot of them have been scrapped over the years. The movements can be quite temperamental and they're not particularly accurate, definitely not by modern standards. And the way they're designed, they kind of wear themselves out as they run. Um, so for obvious reasons, people don't want to go to the expense of getting them restored and they get scrapped. But that's when I come in and start hoarding them all and I have drawers of loads of them that I need to make cases for one one day. It's on my long list of things to do. <laughs> so, I assume, so I assume that sometimes when you go to repair a watch from that era or even the 19th century, the parts are no longer available. You have to machine them yourself and you're essentially... Uh, you're give, you're doing a transplant. You're rebuilding. It's like giving somebody an artificial heart or a new, you know, a, a plastic heart valve. You're, I assume, you're sometimes bringing at least new pieces. Maybe not in terms of materials any different, but certainly new pieces to make those watches uh, tell time. Is that right? Yeah, I love that way of looking at it, like a transplant. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that's how we ended up making new watches because you do you have to learn to make pretty much every part for other people's watches as a restorer. There's no spare part supply for something that's several hundred years old. Um, and that's a really important part of learning restoration. We even use, um, we've got um, tins and collections. 
fallen dinosaur tins um, of old redundant watch parts that we often customize and use to make replacement parts so we can match things like steel and brass in terms of the age so i think something's 150 years old and it needs a new part we can use 150 year old steel to suit it that's that's very cool do you ever have to do you ever have to make your own tools yeah, um, that's how I started my training. So after jewelry and silversmithing, I did that for a couple of years. Um, and it was at that point coming to the end of the course, I was missing a bit of the kind of the rigidity and structure that you get in STEM subjects. And um, I designed a very basic orrery that didn't quite <laughs> work. Um, but the idea of it was spotted by some horology, some watchmaking students who asked if I'd ever thought about being a watchmaker, um, which I didn't realise was a career at the time. So um, I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I went to have a look around their workshop and check out the course. And I just, it was like a, just a wow, this is what I want to do with my life moment. Um, so I, after finishing the two years of jewellery and silversmithing, I moved on to watchmaking. And the first, pretty much the first year of that course at the time was spent making tools um, it wasn't until the very end of the first year that we were actually allowed anywhere near a watch, um, which is great for building up the skills, the hand skills. Obviously, you need a lot of dexterity before you, you're allowed near a precision watch movement. Um, but we could also use the tools we'd made to help us work on watches. It's like being an artist and having, you're not allowed to paint for the first year. We just make brushes <laughs> or stretch canvas or I don't, I don't know what else you would do. But um, it's funny you said, uh, I didn't know it was a career. It turns out it isn't. Well, maybe for a few people, but it's not a easy career for that's widely available as as you as you suggested earlier. Um, you mentioned an orrery. Uh, explain what that is. So, an orrery is a reproduction of the solar system in something you could put on a tabletop. Um, traditionally, they're fully also like work of automata, like a, a little robot, almost hand powered, um, and the 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 planets, the moons would all move around the sun in the centre. Yeah, I, I designed them all as pieces of jewellery. Do you still have that? Um, no, I don't know. Um, unfortunately, uh, yeah, a lot of even what I've made over the years ended up being scrapped to, to keep afloat. So, yeah, it's quite a struggle setting up um, a business if you don't have a lot of backing behind you. But, um, yeah, things are a lot better now. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Let's uh, let's talk about um, one more personal thing, and then we'll get into more of the ideas in the book. Although there's, there's a lot of personal things in the book, uh, but I'll, we'll turn a minute to the to the history of, of time and timekeeping. But I was fascinated by your um, your time in the British Museum. I unfortunately have only been in the British Museum one time, and I think I had I don't know maybe three hours, uh, and the first. There's a when you come in. There's a they give you a a list of the top ten things in the museum, things not to miss if you don't have a long time. And I can't remember whether this was on the list or not, but I one of my favorite rooms was a room of watches and clocks. Um, I don't know if I stumbled on it or it was it's considered one of the best parts of the museum by the people who put out the pamphlet. Uh, talk about that room for a minute, which I assume you've been in at least once, and then what you're doing uh, behind closed doors there, which is really amazing. Yeah, so museums are like icebergs, is the way I describe them. So it's only the very tip of the iceberg that you see in the galleries. Um, there are two gallery spaces for clocks and watches at the British Museum that you can see um, in the, the general public viewing areas. 
um, and one kind of quite extensive uh, cabinet of watches within that. And then it's not until you get behind the scenes that there are, I think, around four and a half thousand watches in the horological study room in the basement of the museum. Um, and that's where I conducted my research. So I take you through into the bowels of the museum and um, to see all the magical things hidden away behind the scenes, which you can book in with the curators to view. Um, it is free of charge to do that. So if anyone fancies going and visiting them and seeing some of these amazing objects, you can. Um, and I spent years um pestering the very patient curators <laughs> studying examples uh, surviving examples of a kind of watch called the dutch forgery which um, became the subject of my phd so i initially found one at, while i was working at an auction house and it was researching it i uncovered this this, this amazing story of the emergence of uh, mass production of watches through forgery um in an area um, that is now famous for being the watchmaking centre of the world and this kind of this roots of this huge industry that grew out of it. Um, yeah, and that was all, yeah, in the British Museum. Just, we'll, we're going to talk about that in a minute, mm. but the, the, um, I probably told the story before, but when I asked a friend of mine who was British what I should do in London, he said, well, you know, the British Museum, of course, comma, the Churchill War Rooms. He had a few suggestions. The British Museum, of course, does not capture <laughs> the spectacular nature of the British Museum, which I could talk about for 15 minutes, but will not, other to make one observation, which is that uh, they have a room for of mummies uh, and sarcophagi, and you walk into that room. And, you know, I've been in museums that they have one. Or they have four or five uh, in that room. In my memory, there were like 60. I don't remember how actually, many there were actually. Mm -hmm. But I did assume that was only the tip of the iceberg. I assume that in the basement, they have a few thousand more or something that they don't display. I might be wrong about that. If you know anything about that, would love to know. <laughs> I don't know about the Egyptology, but I do know it's been moved now when i used to go down to the, the study room for horology there was a viking warship um in a cage on the way down just behind the scenes i remember seeing a little bit of it poking out and seeing the wood obviously it was all in protection and being like oh what's that oh it's a, a viking longship what <laughs> just casually there um yeah it, it is incredible and when you go there quite often you you working there volunteering i was volunteering there um and it's just like oh oh there's a rosetta stone again um <laughs> you're walking past you're seeing all these amazing things you go through the corridors behind the scenes uh, illustrations they had loads of blake prints out as you do just william blake lying around <laughs> casual <laughs> yeah when, we, when you stand at the rosetta stone in my memory and this could be a compression of space that's not really there but to your left, they're the winged black onyx or marble or whatever they are, uh, bull, uh, human, bearded, Assyrian thingies. Mm -hmm. And then to the right, there's a, off to the side in the distance, is a temple. Uh, and I remember asking the docent, uh, those winged things, and they have about, again, they don't have one. <laughs> I don't know dozen or two dozen. I don't know. There's a lot of them. And uh, 
I said, are those real or are those replicas? Oh, no, they're real. Mm. I said, well, people are touching them. She said, oh, they shouldn't. <laughs> and then I asked her if the temple was real. I said, of course it is. You know, some British person had had stolen it on a expedition. It's, uh, it is a, um, it is a, a looting um, storehouse. It's many ethical issues, of course. Yes, yeah. Surrounding that, but uh, while and and um, we've talked on the program about the Elgin marbles, but uh, the what's there right now is really quite spectacular. Whether it's um, should be there or not, but let's move on. So I want to start with a. Um, a a moment in history because one of the nice things about your book is that you show how keeping time led to so many other things, which we don't think about anymore because we know how to keep time really, really well. Uh, who is John Harrison and why is he important? So John Harrison um, is uh, was a clockmaker, carpenter temp clockmaker who ended up uh, solving one of the greatest problems of the day, the longitude problem, um, which was a navigational uh, challenge that we faced during the 18th century of latitude. It's quite easy to calculate. So latitude is your position north or south of the equator. um, And you can calculate that from the angle of the sun. Whereas longitude, which is your east-west position from your starting point, is far more complex. Um, and a miscalculation in your location by even a few degrees could result in disaster, whether that was hitting a reef or ending up at the wrong part of the coast, ending up in completely the wrong place. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a huge, huge issue. And um, the, the race to solve the problem actually started at the turn of the, uh, of the 18th century with a naval disaster that took the lives of... Um, thousands of, of British um, British sailors and that was it and the, the kind of the firing pistol was sounded for the first person who could solve the longitude problem and accurately calculate their longitudinal position out at sea. And how did John Harrison uh, make that possible? Um, Which doesn't seem logical at all actually. Uh, yes. I, I would have just used a very long tape measure but, but that was not... <laughs> Uh, the solution that that he hit upon. No, there's almost kind of a, a slight tape measure uh, solution at one point, which is dead reckoning, which is where you'd put um, a weighted line, uh, set that out behind the ship, and you'd literally use your direction of travel from a compass, um, calculate the speed you're travelling at, and then try and calculate your position best possible just using your speed and uh, direction. Needless to say, that not particularly accurate, particularly over long distances. And this was the issue, especially when you're out at sea, you've got no visual cues of where you are. It's just blue sky, ocean, or stormy sky and ocean in every direction. Um, And for a long time, it was thought that although watches and clocks were around at that point, they weren't all that accurate. And it wasn't believed that uh, it could ever be possible that a clock or watch would be capable of keeping time accurately at sea certainly not accurately enough to calculate longitude reliably. Um, this was one of the solutions that was um, floated, was if you know your time at your home port, so you're, where you've come from, and you can measure your local time quite easily from the position of the sun, you could calculate the difference between the time at your home location and the time where you are now to figure out how far around the globe you've travelled. Um, but you need a really accurate timekeeper to do that. And um, Harrison was not 
uh, dissuaded in his belief that uh, watches or clocks are the future. Initially, he developed a series of three clocks before finally settling on a design of what is basically a giant pocket watch. And this was the first marine chronometer. And did he win the prize? He did. After much uh, arguing and debating, he finally got paid out. <laughs> he got paid a few instalments. There were lots of technicalities to it as well. Um, it had to be replicable. So this had to be a watch that could be given to another watchmaker and recreated again for obvious reasons. Um, it's not a solution to a problem if it's not, you can't repeat it over and over again. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, there were... Um, it wasn't ideal for a long time. They were hugely expensive things as well. So um, even by the, the end of the uh, 18th century, um, when these things had been around for the best part of 50 years, they were still quite rare uh, to be found on Royal Navy vessels, which um, were the, the prime target for them. That's where the, the silly naval disaster um, was what triggered the whole thing. Whereas it it was quite common for them to be used by uh, merchant, tra merchant trading companies, so companies who had a lot of money could afford them, but the Royal Na Navy couldn't necessarily. Uh, you mentioned that the, that the solution had to be re replicated to, to uh, claim the prize. It reminds me of the replication crisis in psychology that we've, and the, more generally in other social sciences that we've talked about on the program before. If someone does a survey... Uh, excuse me, does a, an experiment uh, with, a um, say, undergraduates. And they it's 30 undergraduates. And then they get some dramatic result. But when you do it with 30 adults, uh, older people, when you do it with a different 30, or worse, when you do it with 300, uh, it doesn't hold up. And that's mm. because the third, you did it with 30 people 10 different times and you found the one time it worked and that's the result you printed, whether you convinced yourself of that or you weren't so honest and you didn't mention all the failed ones. But um, in, when, when the replication crisis started uh, to be an issue, people whose surveys and experiments had failed replication would often claim that the people doing the replication didn't know how to ask the questions correctly or give the instructions correctly. And of course, that's not helpful if you're trying to do science. <laughs> if, I, if I can't take your watch or your clock, Mr. Harrison, and put it on a different boat without your constant oversight, it's not very useful. So it has to be replicable. It's a wonderful example of, of, that, uh, of that phenomenon. You tell a lot of stories, not a lot, but you talk for a little bit about how once they got a little more common on boats, they had to be locked up and that led to other problems. Just mention that for a minute because it's quite charming yeah sure i mean this ties in with the repl replicable sorry um thing again of uh there were those sort of accusations if if the watch suddenly didn't keep time then it was obviously something someone had done on the ship um obviously there's issues with magnetism as well on on ships you've got a lot of iron work on ships back then um so there are all sorts of potential pitfalls that could be could be blamed um, and human error was one of them so as the chronometer design evolved they were quite often placed in locked wooden boxes um, and that way only ranking officers would have the key and you'd have someone who was designated as being responsible for maintaining uh, the winding of the ship's chronometer um, but even that in itself creates another room for human error. Um, and I list a few examples of not just the wood of the box warping so the thing gets stuck in there 
You're also losing the keys, that most human error of all. So either your keys getting lost or broken off in the latch, um, someone leaving the ship with the keys. Um, There are also a few incidents involving ship's cats, who um, I can vouch for as having a couple of cats myself. They are very curious animals, um, and they have broken a couple of watches in maritime history. Um, Trim, Captain Flinders' cat, was uh, particularly interested in what was described as, yeah, had an interest in maritime uh, horology. Um, Yeah, so there... it wasn't a perfect science for quite a long time. And a combination of this and them being very expensive, they, we continue to use celestial navigation. So using a sextant as well um, for quite a long time, I mean, right the way up until in the 20th century. That's amazing. Uh, so through most of human history, as progress was made on watchmaking, it's a craft. It's an artisanal craft that a trained and then Someone like yourself who's been doing this for years learns uh, different techniques and is able to solve different problems. But it's it's a craft. It's not a manufacturing process. And at one point in um, uh, well, let's start with your your uh, forgers. Uh, we start with uh, John Welter, and uh, you there's a watch that says it's made by John Welter, but maybe not. So explain what that was about. Yeah, sure. So this is where I was at the uh, auction house at the time. And I'd had um, quite a fairly typical looking uh, second half of the 18th century pocket watch come in. Um, And during cataloguing, you obviously go through everything. You look at the name, the maker, check the movement and so on. And um, this was by a guy called John Wilter and the dial was signed John Wilter, London. So I pulled out the dictionary um, of watch and clock makers that we use um, and looked him up and it just said, uh, John Wilter, perhaps a fictitious name. And that was it. I was like, right, okay, never seen that before. And I started studying this watch in more detail and realised that it was stylistically quite different to what I would expect to see from a London-made watch. And as I did more digging, um, I found them associate, the name associated with something called Dutch forgeries and that these Dutch forgeries, despite being aesthetically Dutch in their design style, were believed to have been made in Geneva. Right. Okay. But signed with a vaguely English sounding name and London. And this made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. So, yeah, I was just like, okay, what's going on here? I have to get to the bottom of this. And that's how I ended up um, in contact with the British Museum. They had um, 30 examples in their basement that they allowed me to study. Um, And I kind of, yeah, started stripping about these watches, looking for hidden marks, messages, meanings, anything that I could find to try and understand the why, the where, the how and the when. Um, And what unraveled from that was the story of the emergence of non-standardised mass manufacture of watches through the production of forgeries in what is now the home of some of the largest watchmaking manufacturers in the world and around the Swiss-French border um, that all kind of cropped up and started to develop out of this trade for imitation London watches. Um, This was at a time when London was the home to the most famous watchmakers in the world. And before brands were a thing, um, cities meant more than the maker's name. So, you know, we're well and truly pre-Instagram now. So you might not know the name of a famous watchmaker, but you'll know that good watches come from London. Everyone wanted a London watch. So London was the obvious one to replicate. Um, However, it was Dutch merchants who were commissioning these uh, watches in their national style. 
whilst recognising that London was the, the cachet, the name that they wanted to add value to it, um, from these manufacturers that were cropping up on the Swiss-French border using a different manufacture, uh, technique for manufacture called the tablissage. And this is where in London um, you'd have small collectives of artisans in a close neighbourhood area, a network working together. Under a tablissage, they brought it all under one roof to create the equivalent of a production line. So merchants would be in control of purchasing the materials and hiring staff. Staff would be doing very monotonous single jobs, like just making screws and things, which are much faster to get good at doing a single job than doing everything. Um, it meant they could compete better with prices uh, and undercut English watches. And they could hugely increase just through the kind of streamlining of production. They massively increased production. So you went from London manufacturers making a few thousand watches a year to these manufacturers could make over 40,000 watches a year. So the reason I love this is in the 18th century, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, Adam Smith writes his first book, which I'm going to quote from in a minute called The Theory of Moral Sentiments in first edition in 1759. Then he publishes his uh, grand opus, his most famous book, uh, The Wealth of Nations in 1776. In that book, among economists, Rebecca, maybe not so much among watchmakers, but he gives this uh, example that I, th I don't think he'd ever seen it himself. I think he imagined it from the comfort of his armchair, but it's a pin factory. And what the pin factory idea is is that it's about specialization and division of labor which allows exactly as you said and i didn't talk to you about this beforehand great minds think alike mm -hmm. you and adam smith this the re repetition of a particular task improves usually the performance of it can lead to boredom uh which can lead to carelessness but if not uh you get a much more productive at each task and the workers working under one roof then as you say, can produce enormously larger numbers of watches. So not only are the, are the watches um, cheaper to manufacture, but there's a lot more of them. And so the market price of the watches uh, begins to fall. And of course, the, the wonderful thing about that, it wasn't so good for the British watch, the London crafts people, but the, the beautiful thing about it is it allowed people who normally could not afford to effectively sustain uh, an artisan standard of living with a purchase of a single watch uh, or a handful of watches uh, could now afford a watch that they no normally wouldn't be able to. Um, so just for example, do you have any feel for how long one of those uh, artisan laboring in London, how long would it take them to make a watch? You say how many could they make a year? So a busy workshop was a few thousand a year. So that's, you know, a few a day, maybe maybe ten a day, um, ten watches a day. But that other that other shop is making um, forty thousand. So instead of making uh, that number, they're making more like a thousand watches a day. Um, which is, did I get that right? No, a hundred watches a day. So they're they're uh, much more, many more, many many, many more watches coming into, into the market. And the price of the watch has is going to be lower because you don't have to compensate the craftsperson for the, the enormous amount of time it would take them, and, and that and that's that's what they're doing. In your case, uh, let's move to the present. If I commissioned you to make me a watch, the Econ Talk watch, and we added it to our swag line, which I think would be extremely popular, 
to have an Econ Talk Pocket Watch. How and and you're working on that and nothing else. How long would that take you to make it? We well, we use a yeah really traditional old school technique. So our longest build has taken six years. Yeah. <laughs> so we're really so, but that gives you that gives an example. If if I couldn't give you at, at least something between three hundred and six hundred thousand dollars, and maybe more for that watch, it's not worth your time. So my the price has to cover your costs, and the costs are your fact that this is what you're doing essentially full time, and. Um, so this revolutionized both the production of watches and, of course, the availability and thereby the price and thereby who could have them. And that changed life in all kinds of other wonderful, interesting, sometimes not so wonderful ways. Yeah. I mean, the wonderful thing is you can follow it in archives and accounts from people, witness statements um, over this period in history. And you go from watches being these hugely valuable things that only the wealthiest can afford and starting to trickle down into all walks of life. So then they eventually come down to the point that if, uh, say, a farmer's had a really good harvest or, or a fisherman's had a really good season, um, they can afford to get a watch um, right the way down to everyone. Um, and that kind of happens over the course of the following century. So although Dutch forgeries were a huge revolution in the way we made watches, um, they weren't the ultimate solution to bringing down the watch to a price that could be afforded by all. That was something that happened in the United States um, the following century. Because uh, Dutch forgeries weren't standardised, so you couldn't make parts in one place and put them together with parts made in another place. You couldn't make the most of uh, differences in materials values in different countries at different times, different tax breaks and benefits. Um, that For that, you needed standardisation, and for standardisation, you need full mechanization so to remove as many humans from the process as possible um and that was really the likes of waltham elgin hamilton in the united states who started producing machine-made watches um and this was where the english industry really hit its downfall so whereas like, the dutch forgeries left it walking wounded but still in existence this complete transformation um in production just yeah, pretty much demolished what was left. And by the end of the uh, 19th century, the UK industry is in a state of decline that it never recovers from. Um, but yeah, so the fully mechanised production that goes up to making over a million watches a year. Um, and by the end of that century, you have Ingersoll's the dollar watch, the Yankee, um, which was priced to be the average worker's wage at the time. So that was the point that even kids could have pocket watches. Everyone had a watch. And that, of course, changed how we think about time and how we made it, got to appointments and how the workplace was structured. And you write about that very, very, in very interesting ways. I just want to say one last thing about the um, the Swiss um, the Swiss production of Dutch style watches to look as if they were made in England, except by Rebecca, who Struthers, who understands what a Dutch watch was typically going to look like. Uh, it reminds me of. Um, and there may be a general principle here. It could be we have a data set with two data points, and that's really not enough. But I just want to mention it. Uh, I'm older than you. When I was young, uh, when I was, say, 10 years old, uh, I was 1964. Around then, I had a um, a radio, which was small. Uh, it was called a transistor radio. You would 
had a little earpiece. You you would you would plug. It had a speaker too. I think you would plug in the earpiece. Didn't have two, one for each ear, just one, and you could hear with very poor quality, tinny sounds of music or sports or whatever. And you could you could um, you could tune it to the station that you were interested in. That transistor radio that I had was almost certainly made in Japan. Uh, in those days, in the early 1960s, which is hard to remember, was less fewer than 20 years after the Second World War, Japan was recovering from uh, the devastation of World War II. Uh, Japan was famous, well-known in those years for producing shoddy, crummy, inexpensive electronics, whether it was TVs or radios. And this may be apocryphal, but I remember being told, it's kind of a typical story that, you know, there may be an element of truth to it, but that there was a town in Japan called Usa so that Japanese manufacturers could put made in USA on their Usa, made in Usa on their uh, low quality, inferior electronics products. The irony is, is that you know, 20 or so years after that, Japan becomes the finest creator of electronics products in the world. Sony becomes synonymous with quality. Uh, their TVs become spectacularly good. Uh, they, of course, come to dominate the electronics market. And then there's another turn of the wheel, and, and we're now in a different era. But it fascinates me that your uh, Dutch forgers were producing things in Switzerland where it was cheap and and sort of low quality. But eventually, Switzerland becomes synonymous with the best watches in the world, for a while anyway. Yeah, I mean, this is where you kind of get the coming together of the capital and the innovation to really get things going. Um, and as the, the Swiss industry was growing, you get the, the American industry perfecting the mass production of watches. So you could make a watch with 99 machines um, by the 1880s. Um, the Swiss saw this and rather than fighting against it, which is what the British industry did, there were a few watchmakers who tried to bring the American mass production system to the UK and they were effectively blocked by the British Horological Institute and the Clockmakers Company because they refused to take on this, what they saw as, um, yeah, just taking down the value of watches, that um, that English watches would continue to be these beautiful, expensive things and other people could make for the masses. It wasn't our, our bag, which was a grave mistake, obviously. Um, and the, the Swiss saw this and thought, hang on a minute, this is, this, this is the future. We need to embrace this. But unlike the American industry, industry um they combined mass manufacture with luxury and put luxury marketing into mass-made watches so that was um, a real stroke of genius and also backing the future of the wristwatch over the pocket watch this was still in the reign of the pocket watch and at this point uh wristwatches were seen as being quite effeminate there was something that women would wear man men or manly men any men didn't want to be seen out in a wristwatch that was kind of a girly thing to do um, whereas the Swiss industry saw the future, particularly coming out of reports from the Boer War and, the, and by the time we get to the First World War, as soldiers were increasingly realising that it's quite handy having the time on your wrist as opposed to in your pocket. 
um, and they put their money behind the future of, of the wristwatch. So you get this coming together of the trusting the future of the wristwatch based on the reports that they had, which is a bit of a gamble, um, with mass, mass manufacture and with this very European sense of, of luxury in a, in a mass stage product, uh, product, a mass produced prestige product. Um, and it's genius absolute genius and that's um that's kind of how the industry as we know it today came together and like you say for how long as well it's obviously there are emerging markets right now doing a fantastic job who had been long dismissed for making cheap knockoffs that are becoming so high quality now that even experts are struggling to tell the difference so (laughs) it all goes around in circles doesn't it (laughs) yeah that's amazing uh i'm now going to read uh from the Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Um, I did not tell you I was going to do this beforehand, so it may, um, I don't know how you react to it, but it's one of my favorite passages uh, for lots of, of different reasons. Uh, he's talking about watches, and again, this is, I don't remember if this is in, I didn't check. Scholars listening, forgive me. So this may be from the first edition of 1759, or it could be from a later edition. I think 1789 was the last edition, but it's, definitely in the 18th century. And uh, here's the quote. Um, A watch in the same manner that falls behind above two minutes in a day is despised by one curious in watches. He sells it perhaps for a couple of guineas and purchases another at 50, which will not lose above a minute in a fortnight. The sole use of watches, however, is to tell us what o'clock it is and to hinder us from breaking any engagement or suffering any other inconveniency by our ignorance in that particular point, in that particular point. But the person so nice with regard to this machine will not always be found either more scrupulously punctual than other men or more anxiously concerned upon any other account to know precisely what time of day it is. What interests him is not so much the attainment of this piece of knowledge as the perfection of the machine which serves to attain it. Meaning, this guy goes out, he's got an inaccurate watch, he buys a better one, but doesn't make him any more on time for his meetings. And then Smith continues, how many, and I, this is going to hurt a little bit, Rebecca, so break <laughs> yourself. It's a little bit um, disrespectful of your livelihood. How many people ruin themselves by laying out money on trinkets of frivolous utility. What pleases these lovers of toys is not so much the utility as the aptness of the machines which are fitted to promote it. End of quote. Uh, of course, in our time, we, we love our toys. We love our frivolous toys, our Apple Watch, or whatever gadget we have. Um, I don't quite agree with Smith, and I know you don't either, because... It's not just that the machine is is uh, apt; it's that it's beautiful. So sometimes art is um, worth paying paying for, even if it doesn't make us more on time for our meetings. Yeah, I mean, I've got to admit there are elements of that I do agree with completely. <laughs> Although, like you say, it's the beauty of the object that I think really appeals to people. In terms of accuracy, it's not. Funnily enough, people ask how accurate the watches I make are, and I mean there are. They're accurate, particularly by the standards of the watches that Smith was talking about. But um, this kind of quest to 
reach fractions of a second in accuracy over several months is not something that personally interests me. I want to create things that are really beautiful. Um, and I don't live my life to an accuracy of a few seconds a month. Um, although we do have clients that do and, and complain when their watches don't um, meet those standards, not my own watches. Uh, they come with a warning. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it is fascinating, this um, obsession some of us have with super, super accurate time when ultimately the most accurate timekeeper you're, you're going to be able to get is a quartz watch or particularly with the um, atomic timekeeping reference. Which I think you said loses a second every 15 billion years, the age of the universe. Yeah, that should keep you there. On time for your meetings. <laughs> yeah, that's a comfort. That's yeah. a comfort. Uh, let's talk about one of the world's, perhaps the world's most famous watch. I, I think if we asked our listening audience, what's the most famous watch? I think they'd struggle to come up with one. And I don't know if in your profession, it's a well-agreed, if it's a consensus. But let's talk about uh, the watch that was made for Marie Antoinette, which um, ironically, it's uh, it's about two miles from where I'm sitting right now, um, uh, and it's had a bit of a journey to get here, and both in its long ago past and its recent past. It's sitting in a museum in Jerusalem um, called the Museum of Islamic Art, which is strange because it's not Islamic, but that's a whole other story. So tell us about that watch. Do you agree? Is it the world's most famous watch? Um, it's definitely up there. I think if you're looking at specific watches rather than brands, um, it is truly an extraordinary work of engineering. Um, and it was made over the turn of the 19th century by a watchmaker called Abraham Louis Breguet, who to this day is regarded as arguably the greatest watchmaker to have ever lived. Um, he has created more inventions still in current use in mechanical watches than any other watchmaker. Um, and he was working through one of the most extraordinary moments in modern European history were through the French Revolution. Um, so this is why, for me, I love him, not just because of what he achieved as a watchmaker, but for who he was as a person. And this, the, his story, his moment in time is utterly fascinating. And the watch he made for Marie Antoinette, um, unfortunately, she didn't live long enough to see it. Um, she uh, met her, her gruesome end too early to uh, to receive it as a gift so it was commissioned for her by an unknown admirer of which she had many so we can't be sure who it was and uh, Breguet was effectively, give, effectively given every watchmaker's dream of an open checkbook and an open diary um, he was told that he could take as long as he wanted um, fatal mistake and um <laughs> It could, there was no limit on cost, just to create the most incredible, beautiful, complicated watch ever created. Um, that gold should replace uh, mater other materials, other metals in the, the mechanism wherever possible. Uh, the case itself has a crystal on the front and back so you can see into the movement. Um, and it's, it's a work of mechanical art. I mean, we talk about mechanical art and people wanting things because they're, they're beautiful. I, I can't think of a finer example ever created than. Then Breguet is um, 106, and um, yeah, it's, it's just exquisite. So you, you summarize, uh, here's a quick summary of it. Um, it had 23 complications, those functions which are surplus to telling the time. It was self-winding and could strike the time out loud, sounding the hours, quarters, and minutes 
on finely tuned gongs made from wire, and it displayed the equation of time. It had power reserve indication. It could run for 48 hours from full wind, a chronograph, a thermometer, and a perpetual calendar. In total, the watch required 823 parts squeezed into a six-centimeter diameter pocket watch and is still considered one of the five most complicated watches in the world. Um, Tragically or not, um, Breguet did not complete it in his lifetime. He got close, Mm. right? Yeah, it was on his bench when he passed away. It was his son that finally finished the watch off that's how long it took (laughs) so um yeah it was a phenomenal work of engineering and i mean some of the complications you mentioned are the ones that are are still in use today so automatic winding self-winding we think of automatic watches that was reggae's invention shock settings in watches so that's um to protect watches from knocks and bumps when they're being worn or if you drop them they were Breguet's invention. Um, even the gongs, so for chiming out the uh, the time, historically watches had used little bells inside them in, in the case, which take up a lot more room. Whereas Breguet invented these wire gongs, um, they run around the outside of the movement in a circle, uh, that take up a lot less space. And this was really popular with the fashions of the time as well, because we were moving into the era of gentlemen's tailoring. So you get these finely fitted almost pantsuit-style <laughs> style attire, um, rather than wearing. Traditionally, watches were worn in quite visually apparent places, so usually hung from the waist on a chatelaine. Um, and by making much thinner watches, not needing these big bells, they suited the, the tailoring of the day. So, yeah, he was all the rage, and Marie Antoinette was uh, regarded as one of the famous names who brought him into vogue. But, and you said, use the word chatelaine, which is the name for the chain mm-hmm. that connects the watch to your waistcoat pocket, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, a couple questions. Did Marie Antoinette ever see the watch? Did she know it was being commissioned for her? No. She um, she was a huge fan of Breguet and owned several of his watches. In fact, she requested a Breguet watch while she was incarcerated at the end of her life. She requested a simple Breguet to help her keep her time while she was in prison. But um, I don't believe, or well, there's no evidence that she knew this watch was being made for her, and she certainly didn't live to see it completed. I um, I would like nothing more than a simple Breguet myself, <laughs> even though I'm not incarcerated. <laughs> <clears throat> Did Breguet ever get paid for it? Um, yes. Yeah, it was completed and sold on to another person, and that's where it kind of goes in and out of the history books before appearing again in the 20th century and ultimately ending up in the collection of David. So, uh, by my calculation, I don't know if I did this correctly, the watch took 44 years to complete. Yes. I think I got that right. At least from the start of the commission to the the finishing by the sun. Mm. Obviously, Breguet did other things in his time than just work on this watch. But it could have been been the uh, LBJ Carroll biography of Breguet, but it wasn't. He wrote other books along the way. now, here's the strange part. So it ends up in the collection of David Solomons, mm. who donates it to the Museum of Islamic Art here in Jerusalem, which uh, it's about, oh, four blocks from where I live, about two miles maybe from where I'm working and recording this. And um, it had a little hiatus uh, for a bit. What, what happened? 
Um, it was stolen, it's, yeah. So it was stolen from the museum in a heist that defied um, from physics, from what I can gather. <laughs> it was an incredible um, theft that uh, took a large number of watches from the collection, including this watch, um, and it disappeared, completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, the authorities tracked took every avenue they could to try and locate the watch and it was assumed gone, uh, disappeared off into a private collection somewhere never to be seen again. Um, and it wasn't until the um, the person who had stolen it, the thief in question, had passed away that so I think it was his late wife um, phoned a, a solicitor to notify that uh, she'd found um, a cache of watches, including the Marie Antoinette, um, in his possessions. And there it was, wrapped in yellowed newspaper in a cardboard box, I, I think. I can't recall. I think it was under his bed. But, uh, yes, this incredible watch that was, um, yeah, one of the most significant pieces ever to be made had uh, been relocated again and was returned to the museum and is now on display after yet another adventure in its uh, long life. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised there hasn't been a movie made about it. It's um, Maybe there will be or maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, according to the wife, and of course we, all, we don't know this, but according to the wife, he can, I, I, I'm giggling because it, it strikes me as implausible. He, he confessed on his deathbed uh, that he had stolen the watches. I'm laughing because it's very possible she was in on it, but this was her way of, I think, at least sustaining some deniability. Who knows? Um, but it's worth noting that not all the watches were returned, if I remember correctly. No, that's correct. A lot of them were, and this one included, but there were. there are still some watches out there we don't know about. Yeah. yeah. And they had spent their entire time in Tel Aviv. Mm. You know, it had been presumed, I think, they had, that because of the value of these, and, and mm. we don't know whether, what the thief had planned to do with them, but uh, he just held on to them. He didn't sell them. He didn't, um, at least the ones that, he, he kept a number of them, a, a good chunk of them, including the most valuable one. What what might that watch fetch at auction today, you think? Do you have any idea? Oh, blimey, it's... It's almost I assume impossible. It's insured. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, how do you insure something <laughs> like that? Now. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the prices of watches, even in the last 10 years, have, have gone through the reef, particularly things with history and provenance to them. And there are a few examples of incredible provenance um, stronger than this one. Um, I mean, even. Uh, it was uh, Paul Newman's Daytona, which is a more modern watch sold for about 16 million. And um, that's for a relatively mass produced steel wristwatch. So I try to think, I'm not a valuer, but a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. Yeah. yeah. A lot. Mm. Um, you talk about a rather extraordinary uh, restoration yeah. uh, that you were able to be involved with. Um, Tells the story of that watch from uh, the Second World War, yeah. which I think beautifully illustrates uh, why Smith was somewhat inaccurate when he talks about trinkets of frivolous utility, um, watches, pens, gadgets of various kind that we associate with her family take on a significance much greater than their purpose, say, of telling time or writing, or they have some, there's something precious about them. So tell us about that watch. 
mean, this is why I wanted to be a watchmaker from the very beginning and not a clockmaker, because it's by wearing the object, they take on a whole new meaning to us and our history and the way they can remind us of people um, and our family, particularly sort of inherited pieces. Um, it's so powerful and means so much. And that's why they're, they're the favourite restorations for me to work on. I'm not bothered about big names um, at all. I'd quite happily work on something worth £20 that means a huge amount to its owners. Um, and this, um, yeah, so the watch I talk about, uh, one of the watches I talk about in the book, one of my favourite restorations, was of uh, Movado Weems. This was to calculate uh, longitude in the air um, 200 years after the initial invention of the first chronometer. And um, yeah, this watch came in um, belonging to a gentleman who'd inherited it from his father. And he told me this watch has an incredible story, um, but he wasn't entirely sure how much of it was true and how much was family legend. And this watch came in, I emptied it out on my bench um, from a, a brown jiffy bag. Um, missing its bezel, chunks out of the case, the dial was damaged, um, missing parts. And he told me that his um, father was um, on a, a bomber aircraft um, providing support during the Dunkirk uh, evacuations during the Second World War. And his plane was shot down. Um, and it, it, it crashed. The, the pilot was killed outright. Um his uh, colleague, there were three of them on board, managed to get hold of the uh, the controls and steer the plane into a, a control landing. But um, unfortunately, he was trapped when the, the plane crashed. His uh, This gentleman's father was thrown from the, the wreckage and uh, ended up being the only survivor of the crash. And uh, so he was he was too badly injured to, to move. He was behind enemy lines by this point um, during the evacuation. Um, the German army were fast approaching and um, he actually ended up luckily being rescued by um, what he just described at the time as being a Scottish division, um, picked him up and carried him to the coast um, where he was, he was taken to hospital and eventually evacuated on the last boat where he said... Um, had uh, Captain Scott's son was on the boat and he, he met him. So Cap, um, Scott of the Antarctic. So this kind of, it was almost like a claim to fame celebrity moment for him that he met Captain Scott's son on this boat. But he was like, I don't know if any of this is true. It's just what he used to tell me. And anyway, the um, watch that he was wearing, which um, was obviously long assumed lost by this point, when he arrived in hospital, um, the flight jacket that... Um, this, uh, that, that the people who'd saved him um, had folded up and put under his head as a pillow. The nurse shook it out and there was a metallic clunk as this watch fell out of the sleeve of, of the jacket. And yeah, it survived the crash with him and it looked like it had survived survived a, a crash out of an aeroplane, the, the state it came in. And, but um, yeah, it survived with him and he kept it after the war and uh, passed it on to his son. And now it had come into us to be um, put back into to a state that he could wear it and pass it on to his children. Um, and it was the most incredible thing for me when you, I'm sure every historian has been through this, you hear these amazing stories and you yourself are thinking, oh, that's too good to be true. That's just too good. <laughs> too good. Um and yeah, I, I fact checked and went through everything and every single thing he said added up. So it's the Highland Infantry Division that were the last battalion to be moving through to the beach to be evacuated in the days after Dunkirk. 
they were the ones, Scottish uh, regiment that picked him up. The last boat was um, indeed captained by um, Robert Scott's son. Everything, everything added up. Even the the record of the crash was listed online, so that the uh, the flight, the record, everything um, added up. The names of all the people involved added up. Remarkably, the the, the uh, flight, um, the crash records said they don't know what happened to the only survivor. They they re- recorded his um, this guy's grandfather uh, as a survivor, but um, suggested that maybe he'd ended up in in prison because there's no record of him after that. And he didn't end up in prison. He got out. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's just absolutely phenomenal. And I, it still gives me goosebumps thinking about it to this day. It's so rare that you have that amount of history and every little detail just ties up perfectly. If I remember, they carried him for two days on a stretcher mm-hmm. yeah. to the coast. It was a rather incredible thing. Mm. You did not restore it to its new condition, though. No, correct? no, we didn't. So, um Sympathetic restoration, we call it, is something that we specialise in. And that's trying to do things that can be undone. So we don't do any more than has to be done to get something working um, effectively. And then we try to do things that can be undone if someone wanted to put it back into its original state again. So, um, yeah, the the bezel that was missing, we replaced. It can be removed. Um, Actually, I I posted about it online and someone got in touch with me to say that they'd recreated, um, engineered some of these examples of the bezels it's very specialized it's the bit that you use to calculate the longitude it rotates and it's numbered um and so very kindly sent as one of those um only it was brand new so i put it in a box of metal files this is one of my tricks to rapidly age something and shook it around in a box of metal files put all dents and scratches and marks back in it um we didn't take repair all of the dents and marks out of the case so that still looks looks like it survived an air crash um and the dial, weird, it was the only thing he didn't know why this damage had occurred, but the Mavado written across the dial um, had been very carefully scratched out um, with what looks like it might have been a pin to just leave the V in the middle. Um, so something that was very clearly intentional, but uh, no explanation as to why. And um, it was theorised perhaps it could have been the Victory V, which I've made famous by Winston Churchill with um, the V for Victory. Uh, but we don't we don't know. And that was all left original. We didn't restore the dial. It still looks completely as it, it would have done. And, and the original owner would have recognized it. Yeah, I'm not sure. It is easily checked. I'm not sure when Churchill first started using V for victory. I, I'd be, be interesting if it was before Dunkirk. But it's, he certainly used it more frequently after. Yeah. Um, and the chunks, I'm curious there were chunks out of the case. If he had wanted it restored to look brand new, could you have done that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, these days, uh, modern technology sometimes is really useful in what we do. And even we have to incorporate it. So lasering, you could have laser filled with steel to fill all the gaps and you could have finished it back so it looked virtually new. But that's not the way it would have been remembered. And obviously, this was something that was so important to his family and um I think the fact that they had both survived and obviously we'd gone on to win the war was something that was really important and the connection that that uh, the original owner had with this watch and that had been passed on to his son. So I think the V for victory thing, if that was what it was, would have been done obviously after the war as part of the celebration that we've all survived and we are victorious and now this watch is 
a literal living piece of history of, of, of well, not literally, but a piece of history that um, that kind of exemplifies this one man's survival and the whole generation of of people, his family and his grandchildren now that exist because um, because of yeah his his achievements. Yeah, amazing. Mm. Uh, I just want to say for listeners, uh, Rebecca has a website. We'll put a link up to it. Um, not all of her watches that she makes are, are six hundred thousand dollars. Just want to reassure <laughs> people: you you can own a a um, a craft handmade watch for less than that. So people can check this out if they want. I want to close with um, time uh, the, and your thoughts about time. They're scattered throughout the book. Uh, some beautiful passages in the beginning, and we're talking about the seasons. And certainly at the end, when you talk about some of your own personal challenges, uh, do you think that being a watchmaker makes you experience time any differently than the rest of us? Um, writing a book about time, does it change you in any way? Um, I think it has done. I think it's taken time to um, to change my outlook, but it it certainly has now. Um, and I think it's something that kind of grew quite slowly in a way that I didn't realise it was happening until it happened. And, and certainly some of the things I'll talk about later in the book, um, this idea of coming back to watches being this beautiful work of art, that's very much what they are to me. Um, and so they're not something I feel defined or uh, regulated by. I love working on them, not because they tell me the time, but because they're beautiful things to work on. Um, so I don't feel pressured by them in that way my ticking clock is not a source of pressure for me um i find it quite therapeutic actually very therapeutic because it means it's working again which is a good sign of course um but also making things in a very traditional way takes a long time and there's something really beautiful in having the availability to kind of give yourself over to that process that this cannot be rushed and if it's going to take you a year to make this thing it's going to take you a year and that is what that is and you're just going to roll with it um and as I say in the book kind of you notice yourself visually aging um <laughs> with the watches that you create and you can kind of measure parts of your life with the projects that you've been working on but it's it's a real pleasure to be able to work that way in such a fast-paced modern world. There aren't many things I think you can still do that really allow you to give yourself over like that and just yeah, enjoy the process. My guest today has been Rebecca Struthers. Her book is Hands of Time. Rebecca, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>